If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. As we continue and button up this chapter of Scripture, what we're calling the sovereignty of God and salvation in this particular message, part 2 from last week, the sovereignty of God and the song of the saint. And so we gave you four verses to a song, so to speak, at the end of the message last week. We're going to tag a few more verses to that song. Hopefully it will be a reflection of your heart and your life if you are a saint of God. And if you are not, uh, today you will become one. God himself will have created a desire in you to place your faith in Jesus to be your Savior. And we're going to pick this up right where we left off. Uh, So we're not going to be grabbing the entire context, uh, beginning in in verse 1. We're going to actually pick it up in verse 19 where we left off. But I will say this just before we start reading. If you'll recall, we said last week that in the first three chapters of Romans, you have man on trial. Uh, You have the pagan, you have the moralist, you have the Jew. Everybody, we're all put on trial and we're all found guilty before God. All of us are guilty before God. We're sinners. Do you agree with that? And uh, so now in chapter 9, the tables are turned and man with his prideful audacity is putting God on trial. And while man was guilty of all the accusations of the first three chapters and then some, God is not. And he is answering these false accusations. And we pick it up in verse 9 where he says, You will say to me then, why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why, you know, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make this out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory... For vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people will be called my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah, another prophet, cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would become, or we, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? I'll tell you why. He says, here's why. Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were based on works... 
They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want to start out by quoting some of those Old Testament prophets. So God says through Isaiah, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him or with the ones who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive those who are contrite in heart. Jeremiah puts it like this. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, executing loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. With these, God is pleased. And the psalmist said, Though the Lord be on high, yet he regards the lowly. But the proud, he knows from far away. Have you ever read that? And so, as you can imagine, those of you who have been with us with this series in Romans 9, and 8 actually, there's sort of been a predicted response. Very passionate One individual even let me know that I'm a five-point Calvinist, which I I guess I should thank him for helping me understand myself a little bit, even though I have never described myself with that kind of terminology. In fact, if you've been listening to the series, I took on one element of the tulip because of its theological implications. But just the same, let's admit this is a hot-button issue. Will you agree with me on that? Sovereignty, election, foreknowledge, predestination, and all that goes into the plan of God. But it's unfortunate that a lot of the arguments that people will bring against the doctrines of grace are born out of ignorance. And most of them betray their own pride and their own arrogance. And not just their own personal pride, but just the general pride of man himself who just glories in the idea of having something to do with your salvation. i got to get my little filthy hands involved in this thing. Well, you do have one part to do with your salvation, but it's not the one that a lot of you are thinking, and we'll come back to it. We actually referred to it a few weeks ago. You might remember it. As Brad mentioned a little bit ago, uh, starting next week and way up, All the way through Easter, we're going to start a a, a new Easter series. We'll be in the Gospels. And we'll focus on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, if you want to get 
the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus from an observer's perspective, from our perspective, you got to go to the Gospels, right? There we see Jesus in all of his humanity and all of his abject humility. We see him illegally tried. We see him beaten to a pulp. We see him hanging on a cross. We hear his words. And we hear the words of those who hurl insults at him. But if you want to get the crucifixion from Jesus' perspective, you got to go to Psalm 22, which we're, and that's where we're going to go on Good Friday. In Psalm 22, now watch this, the cross is inverted. Not, not in the sense of being turned upside down, but, it, but inverted in the sense of being turned around. In Psalm 22, you have the cross through Jesus' eyes. It's a messianic psalm. It's Jesus talking. It's him looking around at those who are crucifying him. Very powerful. You say, was that just a commercial for Easter? No. No. Because in Romans 9, the gospel is inverted. Think about it. If... Uh, if the gospel from our perspective is pretty simple, isn't it? I'm a sinner. God is holy, but he sent his son Jesus to die and rise again for me. I need to repent and believe on him and I'll be saved. Amen? That's pretty simple. I like that. I like simple. But here in Romans 9, it's sort of inverted. We get God's perspective of the gospel. We get to peek in on on this plan from eternity past. And we incorporate truths like Rome or Ephesians 1, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Wow. And we see that God, as God, has orchestrated everything, and we're left to marvel and to adore him. Because, as he said to John Piper in his heart many years ago, I will be adored and not just analyzed. So let's review where, we, where we've come from, because we're buttoning this thing up before we get into our Easter series. We've said, from Romans 8 and 9, that God's plan is intact from start to finish. It's not open-ended. And we saw that at the end of Romans 8, right? Whom he foreknew or set his affection on, these he also predestined. Those he predestined, these he also called. Those he called, these he also justified. Those he justified, these he also glorified. Front to finish. The gospel's not open-ended. His plan's not open-ended, that is. It's intact. We say that God's plan is not fatalistic, but it's personal, it's unconditional, it's, it's, it's in accordance with the very love of God. That's why Ephesians 1 verse 5 says, in love he predestined us. Have you ever read that? In love. God, is, God doesn't do things arbitrarily. God is a God of love, and his plan has love written over. Fatalism doesn't have love. It just has chance, and, and there's nothing personal about it. We said that God, while God chose a nation, i.e. Israel, he saves individuals, right? 
And he's showing that repeatedly, even in Romans chapter 9, choosing Abraham out of the, un, out of the pagan nation, choosing Isaac over Ishmael, choosing Jacob over Esau. And we said that the sovereignty of God was never meant to negate human responsibility. That, that would be a ditch. If you fall into that ditch, you, you need to get out of it. The sovereignty of God doesn't negate your responsibility or my responsibility to respond to God. Not at all. That's the reason why, by the way, Romans 9 naturally gives way to Romans 10, where you have human responsibility. Believe on the Lord. If you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Human responsibility and taking the gospel to the nations. How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to, how they, you know, how's that going to happen unless somebody's sent? And finally, man's contribution to, to being saved is your sin. That's it. That's what we give God. I know that doesn't really lift you up a whole lot. But that's all we have to give him is our sin. It's not your zeal. As we'll see in Romans 10, the Jews have a zeal for God, but it's not according to righteousness, right? It's not your zeal. It's not your works. And it's not even your will. And this is where everybody goes, oh, you're kidding because I thought it was my will. You know, I w-. Is your will involved? Of course it is, but your will doesn't save you. Did you miss that? Let's go back. Look at verse 16 again. I mean, look at this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. That's the works. But on God who who gives mercy. And we saw this last week, how completely salvation is of God. Paul took the two things man loves to exalt in his own life, his will and his works, and effectively disqualifies both. As contributing to salvation. Again, look at it. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. Wow. Just look at it again. It does not depend on, what's it say? Human will. Or what? Exertion. Your works. We get the the second part. Yeah, it's not by works. But it's not by your will either. That's pretty humbling, isn't it? Listen carefully to this. At salvation... Our wills respond willingly. Our hearts respond joyfully. Our inward desire responds with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, we become sons and daughters of God. But God, but for his mercy, but for his Holy Spirit's prompting, But for his quickening power to our lifeless hearts, our willful wills, our unbelieving minds. If that doesn't happen, then we will remain heartless for him, helpless in our sins, and hopeless for all eternity. So in these last, this last package of verses here in Romans 9, Paul is going to deal with these false accusations against God. He's going to show that God's character is impeccable. That his conduct is consistent throughout all eternity. And even in the pages of scripture. And that his righteousness that he gives 
comes about the same way it always has, through faith. First, notice his character is impeccable. Look at verse 19 again. He says, again, answering the accusation, he says, will you say to me, why does he still find, why does God still find fault? If he's the one who, who, if he's the one who chooses, if he's the one who hardens who he wants to harden and saves who he wants, has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion, you know, passes over those he doesn't, how do, how do you find fault in us? Look at verse 20. Just look at it. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? I'm telling you, this might be the only thing some of us here today need to learn. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is the sternest question found anywhere in Scripture. And so I think we ought to just be arrested right here. Hey, did anybody catch that woman uh, that's running for the Iowa Senate and her clever commercial lately? You catch that? Oh, it's hilarious. Very clever. Jimmy Fallon caught it too. But he couldn't get beyond her opening line. I saw this on YouTube today. It's a commercial from a woman from Iowa named Joni Ernst, who is running for the Senate. Uh, I think um, today she released a campaign ad. Take a look at this. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. Stop, stop, stop. Oh! Stop. Stop. Do you want to do one more take? Oh. Let's just do one more take. You yeah. sure? Try it again. Well, I don't know what she's running for, but we just give her the job. I mean, just give her the job. I had to throw a little bit of levity in because the rest of the sermon is so heavy, you know. I mean, that's funny. But this isn't. Because the Apostle Paul can't. Get beyond the thought of his detractors that they have the audacity to answer back to God. And so it would be a good idea for us to just think on this question. By the way, a question that is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit gave this question to the Apostle Paul. God himself is asking us this question. Look at it again. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And it doesn't seem to matter because some of you will take this in and you'll still attempt to put God on trial. How foolish. How foolish. You'll still question the impeccable character of God as to why he does what he does and doesn't do what he doesn't do. All these determining factors in someone's salvation. Logic, you say, demands that, that, you know, if God is choosing some to be saved, he must be choosing some to be damned. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. 
Ray Steadman reminds us that those who are lost who will be damned are already damned. Listen to his words. He says, all are already lost and God is not responsible for that. God never elected man to be damned. That was man's own choice. The only time that man ever exercised his own free will was when Adam chose to accept the principle that the devil set before him and to act independently of God. Now watch this. It is not God's hardening that deprives a soul of salvation. That merely leaves him in the state he's already in. And look at that as I finish the quote. But if God did not move in mercy, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah, blasted, corrupted, ruined, and burned. Look at verse 22. But what if? He gives that illustration. It's pretty self-evident. Doesn't the potter ever write over the things he's doing with his clay? Answer? Answer? Yes, he does. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So in these two verses, you have the twofold reason that God did what he did to Pharaoh. We looked at that last week. Who did, by the way, Pharaoh, who did what all lost people do, just simply followed his, all, his hardened heart by hardening it further. And God allowed this to happen so, so as to demonstrate, look at the text, demonstrate two things. Wrath His wrath and power to the vessels of wrath, that's in verse 22. And his riches and glory to the vessels of mercy, those who would be saved. As I mentioned to one individual the other day, a new Christian, we have lots of new Christians around here, praise God. And as new Christians often do, they struggle with life and life's decisions. The gospel sort of upsets a lot of things in their lives. They start to learn to walk with God. And this... Dear Saint was beginning to struggle because he was getting his eyes on things on this earth too much. And I pointed out to him that he has been given eternal riches and he needs to focus in on those things. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul said, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be made what? Rich. And God put all of this on display during those plagues where he finally freed the Jews and brought about redemption so that he could display both his wrath and power to those vessels of wrath who would be damned as well as his riches and glory to those vessels of mercy who would be saved. Now, we pointed this out a few weeks ago But I need to point it out to you again because it's so important in the text. Verses 22 and 23 have a word. It's the word prepared. There is a significant nuance in the Greek that is not readily seen by us with our English Bibles. 
And I don't like to do this because it's not my desire to make you swim and, oh man, I can't see that. I want, but I want, I need to point this out. The first word prepared in verse 22, look at it. He says in verse 22, he says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared, there's the first word, for destruction. These are the people that are going to hell. Okay? Prepared for the destruction. That word prepared, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is, is passive. The voice in the t- is passive. What that conveys is, it conveys the, the idea that they have prepared themselves for judgment. It conveys the idea that they have prepared themselves by the rejection of God's truth. Thus man is seen here as his own worst enemy, following the dictates of his heart. But the next word prepared in verse 23, notice, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That word prepared is in the active voice, conveying the idea that God himself has made them ready for heaven. Thus, as Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, God prepares men for glory, but sinners prepare themselves for judgment, unquote. And John MacArthur writes that the passive voice puts responsibility, quote, fully on the shoulders of those who refuse to heed his word and believe in his son, unquote. In other words, if you go to heaven, it's because God acted upon you to believe. And boy, am I glad God acted on me to believe. But if you go to hell, it'll be because you have simply followed the corrupt, sinful dictates and inclinations of of your nature, and you will perish. By the way, herein lies the secret of what John says at the very end of the word of God in Revelation 22, where he, the very last invitation comes out. And he says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Watch this. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And the one who desires, let him take of the water of life freely. That is without price. If you are thirsty for the truth of God and for Jesus Christ and to have your sins forgiven, then come. Nothing is stopping you. If you have a desire, come. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Come. But if your desire is still bent towards your sin, You will judge yourself. In a very real sense, God prepares men for heaven, but men prepare themselves for hell. This is the reason why I reject, and that's because Scripture rejects the theology of double predestination, which teaches that God predestines some to heaven and some to hell. While it might makes sense to your finite mind, even to my finite mind, 
It seems logical. I mean, if he does the one, he must do the other. It's not taught in Scripture. Christopher Ash, in his commentary, puts it like this. Listen to this. this. These are powerful words. When God hardens someone, he does not change them from neutral or innocent to guilty. He hands them over to the consequences of their own sin. But when God rescues someone, he changes their state from guilty to the innocent. Here's another way to look at it. If God passes by those who will be damned, he doesn't change anything about them. They, like everyone who's been a follower of Jesus before them, are already damned by their own sinfulness. Remember what Jesus said? He who believes in the Son is not condemned, but the one who does not believe the Son is already condemned. The truth of the matter is, in order to be saved, when God saves anyone, anyone, he must change us. If anyone be in Christ, he's, a, he's changed. A new creation. And that's why I love you know, the argument here in verse 22. I love the way he starts it. What if God... I love that. Look at it again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience, which is a very nice thing for him to do, by the way. Be patient with us. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God? Paul is inviting us to humble ourselves and to see the wisdom of God here. He's saying, in essence, what if God, through his patience, hardened Pharaoh in order to mightily save the Jews and then later hardened the Jews in order to mightily save the Gentiles? What do you think of that? Are you for that? If you're not a Jew, you should say, yeah, I'm all for that. And if you are, then stop putting God's impeccable character on trial. What he does for his chosen, he does in love without obligation to anyone. You say, well, that's a hard word. It's true. And it should cause us to go from analyzation to adoration, right? Secondly, notice that his conduct is consistent. And you see that in verses 25 as he, as he just starts throwing out this plethora of Old Testament verses. Let me, just, let me just tell you something really about this point. God is consistent. The Bible is consistent because God is consistent. The Bible never, inter- never, never, never contradicts itself. Now, most of you, if you've studied the Bible at all, you know there are three principles in Bible study. Observation, interpretation, and application, right? Observation says, what do I see? Interpretation says, what does it mean? Application asks the question, how do I apply this to my life? But I've always found that system to be just a little, um, a little short. It's good, but it's not complete. I think it should be observation, interpretation, correlation, and then application. What do I mean? Observation. What do I see? Interpretation. What does this mean? 
correlation. Where else is this taught? Because the Bible interprets itself. If one truth is taught somewhere, then you can be sure it's taught somewhere else because God is consistent. The reformers called this the analogia scriptura. means the Bible always comes together. It'll, It'll never contradict itself. It always comes together. Correlation. Which again asks the question, where else is this taught? And so Paul here makes a beeline for the principle of correlation. He's, he's laying out these truths, and he sa- then he says, listen, this is not a new thing. God is consistent. He's always done this. And he shows you in verses 25 through 29 by saying, he says, well, for instance, Hosea. Let's go back to Hosea. And he quotes him. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. He says, I've always had a, God has always had a plan for outsiders. This plan was never intended to just be for Jews. Verse 27, he says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That's a hard word, isn't it? He's saying, I never planned. It was never my intention to save every single Jew in all time. And the Jews kind of thought, well, you know, if you're a Jew, you're in. And And then he says in verse 28, For God, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. God's patience must give way to his wrath. As James Boyce said, although God's God's patience is great, it's not eternal. If you think about that, there is going to be no need for patience in heaven. None. And finally, in verse 29, he said, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. But for the mercy of God, none of us would be saved. None of us would be saved. Which comes into the next accusation, because he's saying, well, what? I mean, what about all these, I mean, we, us Jews, we've been following everything. We, we follow the law. And now you're just giving your salvation to people who aren't even looking for it. The Gentiles. That's a little paraphrase of the verses that follow. But look at it. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they didn't do it by faith. That's why. Hence the third point. God's righteousness comes the same way it has always come. By faith. This last accusation here questions how God could ignore his people who knew and even pursued his law but could miss out on his righteousness and yet Gentiles who weren't even looking for it God saves. And Paul is saying, you've missed the whole point. The whole point is God, in his consistency, has always given out his righteousness the exact same way, by faith. 
You need, we all need God's righteousness. We are unrighteous. Through Jesus Christ, when we believe on him, he gives us his righteousness. That righteousness has always come about the same way. Always. From time immortal, salvation has always been by faith. Do you remember Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15? God takes him out, asks him if he can count the stars. Nope, too many. Well, here's the deal, Abraham. You won't be able to count your offspring either. What? I believe you. He believed God. And Genesis 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It's always been that way. It has, listen to this, it has never been by upbringing. Did you hear that, mom and dad? Salvation has never been by upbringing. Though it should lead to righteousness, verse 31, the upbringing that is. It has never been by knowledge, though it should lead to righteousness because you're gathering knowledge, you're learning the word of God, you're teaching your kids truth, you're coming to church, but knowledge doesn't save you. And it has never been by ethnicity. But by faith, as it responds to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And there's the stumbling stone. Look at it. Verse 32. Why, why is it? Why were these Jews cutting themselves short? Because they were not pursuing it by faith. But as it were based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that phrase means exactly what comes up on your mind. It means to trip over something. They're tripping over Jesus. That's who they're tripping over. And that's what some of you are still tripping over. He says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, that whoever believes in him, see, the stone is personal, him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. The stumbling stone is Jesus Christ. This is a strong warning to all of us. But I love the way Paul has taken this incredibly deep sermon in Romans 9 and made it simple. It's about faith. That's it. He's made it simple. You have knowledge, but your knowledge won't save you. In fact, it could become a stumbling block if you don't see Jesus in the knowledge that you have. I was talking with my son the other day, and we were talking about John 5, 39. In there, Jesus says, you know, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they're the ones who bear witness of me. I actually had a professor in Bible college have us memorize that verse with the intention, listen to this, with the intention that it would be a proof text for the value of knowing Scripture. That is exactly the opposite of what Jesus intended when he said that. He was criticizing his enemies. He's saying, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are the very thing that bear witness of me. And you're missing me. You're stumbling over the stumbling stone. Jesus is the stone. And it's not just Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. So listen to me, dear ones. You will either stand or stumble on your response to Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. And I plead with you this morning. I plead with you to stand by believing 
on the Lord Jesus Christ and so avoid eternal shame for choosing not to do so. As we wrap this up this morning, I want to go back to that song that I, I wrote last week. Not really a song, but the sovereignty of God should produce a song in the saint. And these are really commitments. I gave you four of them, four stanzas last week. I'm going to add three more this week. We'll give them all to you. If you're in the system, they'll come to you right after the service in your email. You don't need to write it down. If not, you better start writing. The sovereignty of God and the song of the saint. And here's my challenge to you as we look through these things. This is sort of the capsulization of all that we've studied over the past month. And I'm asking you to ask yourself, where am I struggling here? So, for instance, the first stanza we saw last week is, I will magnify you, O Lord, for your wisdom, though it is often beyond my comprehension. Right? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's how he's going to end this whole section in chapter 11. But can you do that? Can you say, I will magnify you, Lord? For your wisdom, though it's often beyond my comprehension. As you go to the second stanza, I will praise you, Lord, not for my choice of you, but for your choice of me. Can you do that? Remember what Jesus said? You didn't choose me. I chose you. Oh, okay. And thus, thus, I will praise you, Lord, not for my choice of you, but for your choice of me. Can you do that? Can you say that? Can you say it from your heart? I will marvel at you, Lord, is the third stanza. Not because you didn't love another, but because you love me. Grasp that thought. The Apostle Paul put it like this. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live Not I, but Christ lives in me. Watch this. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you ever read that? He personalizes it. Have you? Can you say to God in a song? Can you say to him, I will marvel at you, Lord. Not because you didn't choose to love another, but you chose to love me. Here's a fourth, and this is a new stanza. I will obey you, Lord, for your commands are clear, even though your judgments are not. Isn't that true? I, I, you just make a commitment. I'm talking to you who love Jesus. I will obey you, Lord, For your commands are clear, even though your judgments, they're not always clear to me, right? Why God does what he does. Doesn't do what he doesn't do. Moses wrote, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Have you ever read that? So he's saying there are some things that are very clear. Obey them and stop worrying about the rest. 
Here's the fifth stanza. <laughs> I will have questions for you, Lord, but I will never doubt your ways again. Can you really say that? See, God doesn't mind the questions. There's a lot of, the psalmist is constantly asking God for questions. But don't be doubting his ways. And can you say that in a commitment to God? I'll have questions for you, Lord, but I will never again doubt your ways. Can you make that kind of commitment and sing it in your heart as a saint of God? And here's what the sixth stanza said. We actually gave it to you last week, but it's for those of you who don't know Jesus. I will trust you, Lord, for your salvation. Listen to you. Listen to me. Those of you who don't know Jesus here, I will trust you, Lord, for your salvation. For that is what you've called me to do. God hasn't called you to figure out this great plan from eternity. He's called you to do one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Are you thirsty? Do you desire this? Do you understand your dilemma that you're a sinner? And some of you have been amassing knowledge, but you've been tripping over Jesus. Why don't you place your faith in him? Believe that he died and rose again for you. I will trust you, Lord, for your salvation. That's what you've called me to do. That's all he's called you to do. And finally, as we button it up, the last stanza in the song. I will worship you, Lord. For in analyzation of your ways, I have found adoration of you. God says to all of us, I will be adored and not just analyzed. Amen. And so, after I pray, we're going to take up an offering here. And... There's a card, you all got it, it's in, it's in your bulletin, Is, or if it's, in, if it's not there, it's in front of you. I want you to pull that out. If you're a visitor with us, please write your name down, let us know who you are. We're, we want to get back with you, we, we, we're so grateful for you being here. But I want everybody to think on those seven stanzas I went through. Did one of them particularly stand out to you? And did you say, oh man, I can't, man, I I struggle with number four. I struggle with, with my worship of you, God, when I can't understand everything about you. Can you love God and worship him and marvel at him and praise him for just for who he is? And if you're a Christian, can you thank him for his choice of you, not your choice of him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to come together this morning and open up your word and look into these deeper things and even see this inverted aspect of the gospel and see it from your perspective these last several weeks. And I know that these kinds of messages and this passage of scripture often breeds more heat than it does light. And that's a sad thing because that was never your intentions your intention not just to bring light, but to bring glory and worship and praise to you and comfort with the, with the true knowledge of our salvation. And I pray, dear God, that for those who are in this room right now, 
who have never placed their faith in Jesus, that's the only thing they need to be concerned about. And if they are indeed concerned, if you have caused their wills, you have caused their minds, you have caused their desires to say, I want Jesus, I want my sins to be forgiven. If that's you, you would say, I want my sins to be forgiven. Then just believe right now. Confess your sin. Believe that Jesus died for those sins and believe that he rose again and ask him to come into your life right now as you pray. Right now, just receive him. For the rest of us who know you, Lord, may we acknowledge that you will have your own way. May we acknowledge that you are the potter and we are the clay. May we say with our, all of our hearts, mold us, make us after your will, and we'll be yielded before you and still. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.